Welcome to my podcast, Don't Make This Weird. Each week I invite a special guest to talk about their life, the news, politics, and anything else that might come up. Welcome to another episode of Don't Make This Weird, the podcast. I am very, very, very excited uh, to have this week's guest here. Uh, she is somebody that I admire and respect and just absolutely adore. Uh, she's a journalist. She is a filmmaker. She is a do-gooder on Twitter. She's calling out media bias when she sees it. She's the one, the only, Cassandra Nicholson. Hello, friend. Hello, hello. How's it going? It's it's going so much better now that you're here. Oh, thanks. I will do my best not to make it weird. <laughs> so <laughs> on this podcast, we do love a good origin story. So tell me about baby Cassandra. You know, was oh was filmmaking God. and journalism always the plan or yeah, um, I've always been uh, a writer since I was a kid. I would I would write like poetry and, and stories. And like in first grade, I won some school wide poetry contest. But I strongly believe it's probably because there weren't a ton of submissions. <laughs> <laughs> I had to read it in front of the entire school. And this is like first grade me like, oh, my God. But it, it shows that I, I've always liked to tell, to tell stories. I've always liked to um, observe human behavior and analyze it a little, a little bit, not clinically, but almost from an artistic standpoint. So um, when the time came to pick a major, my first, my first choice is actually law. I was, I wanted to pursue criminal justice. I wanted to be a prosecutor. And one semester of that, I was like, oh, wait, I might have to actually prosecute people who are innocent yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I pursued what I had been pursuing in, in high school, which was journalism. So I switched to, to the journalism school and I graduated from uh, the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State. Um, that was the safe, you know, considered a little bit safer than filmmaking. And at the time, it seemed like it was a steady gig. And within a few years, it became clear that journalism, just like film and television and anything that has to deal with media is just as uh, uncertain in terms of being able to guarantee that you can make a living. And there were also elements of journalism that that bugged me. The, the very things that we kind of decry, or at least a lot of people are frustrated with on online now, you know, I graduated in 2008, and it's it was a similar situation where it just felt like there was a vulture capacity, even to straight breaking news. And Unfortunately, the trend has continued where that's still a, a problem. The, the virtue of journalism is, is weak, has been weakened. It's eroding because of the, the political and the business uh, aspects of it that make it less altruistic in nature. So um, I knew that it probably wasn't going to be the perfect fit for me. And so I did, I did study some you know, filmmaking, screenwriting, and managed to find a sweet spot along the way of, of, of nonfiction in the documentary space. So I've been able, I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that over the last couple of years, actually get paid to tell people's real stories without the confines of sort of the, the news structure 
which is oftentimes very limiting. I can have a, an opinion about things. I can be open about those opinions, be open about maybe my opinion is wrong and get to the bottom of it. And so really just being able to use my naturally inquisitive nature to pick people's brains has been really great the last few years, being able to do that um, sort of on my own terms. And uh, yeah, the future is still uncertain for everybody. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Uh, but I am really glad that I've been able to kind of start carving out uh, a niche for myself and, and a path for myself that includes hearing other people and letting them know that they're heard, letting them know that they're seen. And uh, yeah, so it's been pretty cool. Now you mentioned um, the erosion of uh, journalism and uh, for, for the people listening who aren't familiar, um, I feel like the, the most apparent uh, erosion has been um, access journalism. Uh, mm -hmm. do, you, do, you, do you see that as well? Or is that just yes. something that I... No, it's bad. It's really bad. And the reason why it's so bad, I would say, is because, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, just like with television, the advent of, of TiVo and 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 cable, you know, seemingly on the decline, uh, you had this situation where legacy media did not want to adjust their practices to how consumers behaved. And there's pros and cons to that. Uh, but what happened, you know, essentially was there's a wake up call financially in, in the news uh, world where they no longer were making money hand over fist. And they, rather than, you know, really being proactive in terms of realizing that audiences are shifting to digital, they really were stubborn. Again, just like TV networks, just like other, you know, media outlets. And that has created, I think, over the last 20 plus years now, a reactionary, uh, be, sort of a reactionary uh, trend where instead of getting ahead of technology, they are constantly just responding to what audiences want. And when you're constantly responding to what audiences are doing in the digital space, what it, what it creates is this sort of hunger vacuum where everybody's trying to chase the same eyeballs, which they were always chasing, but it's a little bit different now because the money is, has to stretch further than it, than it ever had to. And so what happens is you've got these legacy media organizations like the New York Times, like the LA Times, Washington Post, um, where in order to survive, they need one or two uh, reporters. Yes, they're reporters who've been in the industry for a while. So they're, they've established a trust with their audience, uh, but they've also established a trust with their own sources that some could call uh, inappropriate. And so this, this sort of being led by legacy outlets, this access journalism, the notion that journalists no longer have to tell the public what they know immediately, they can hold on to that information and save it for their book, uh, a book that their, that their publisher will, will certainly benefit from, uh, that their agent will benefit from, that their outlet benefits from. And so this withholding of information is, is dangerous. It's, you know, we, we saw it even, after 9-11, how uh, the drumbeats of war led us into what would essentially be, you know, a 20-year occupation. 
and journalists didn't stop that. So the fact that it's continued all because, you know, these outlets want to control how much information they're giving to the public, whereas in, in, go to any journalism school in America, any top journalism school, including the one I attended, but the ones that are on the coast in LA and in New York and DC, that's not what they're teaching their students. You know, they're not teaching their students to hold on to, to information. They're teaching them to share it ethically um, as objectively as possible, but without any of the sort of um, benefits that a lot of these senior reporters at these legacy media outlets are, are being able to use, which ultimately calls into question their day-to-day -day reporting. If you're gonna withhold, you know, a very key detail that you will then tease out for your book eight minutes, eight months after the fact. Um, what else are you withholding? You know, it's it's really unfortunate that it's that it's gotten this bad, particularly with those outlets that people have that we've all been, you know, conditioned to believe are the best of the best. Um, but I don't see it going away unless unless and until books start flopping, and even then that might it might not go away because. The behavior has been rewarded at outlets and it hasn't really been punished by by audiences or viewers yet. So there's there's a kind of agreed upon uh, stance of Gen X and millennials that <laughs> we're 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 all tired of living through these so-called once in a lifetime events. Um, and more specifically, uh, right right now, we are we are in the midst of you know what what feels like to some as a once in a lifetime event, as uh, the confirmation hearings for uh, what will be the first black woman Supreme Court justice are 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 happening. Um, have you been watching the confirmation hearings? Yeah, I've watched um, not as intently. It's been on basically on C-SPAN in the background as I've as I've worked these last uh, couple of days, mostly because I believe this is a formality. She is immensely qualified uh, when you when you stack her up against sitting justices. The Washington Post, to their credit, did have a great infographic that showed um, her qualifications from the kinds of school that she went to, she went to a public school and an Ivy League. You know, she's 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 been a, a trial, excuse me, she's she's actually argued cases and then she went on and was a judge. So she's qualified. This is a formality. And and I appreciate the a lot of the really great energy around it and support of her because we need to see more of it. We need to see more support of black women going through these sort of gatekeeping formalities. Uh, and it needs to be <laughs> needs to be clear just how unserious the GOP is. I think that that they they really don't make it hard for us for anybody to prove that point. Uh, but it's hard sometimes to see, particularly when you have senators like Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz and Chuck Grassley just being just and and Holly. Don't even get me started on him. Just being so incredibly disrespectful. So I haven't watched it as as uh, as carefully as other folks, just because we all knew that was going to happen, and I find it to be uh, 
rather triggering. I've, I've been fortunate enough to see some of the really good things that have come out of it. Um, today's moment with, with Cory Booker, for instance, yeah. this was great. Uh, but she's she's qualified. This is just a, a step toward what is, I believe, um, her destiny. And I didn't know much about her before uh, she was nominated last year to the federal court and, and was confirmed easily, rather easily. Uh, so I, I don't. Um, I, I don't know why we have to keep going through these things. These, like you said, once in a lifetime events in 2022. I don't know why they have to keep being fought as fervently as they are by, by disingenuous, bad actors, uh, bad faith uh, um, actors. But, you know, it is, it is what it is, I guess. It's, um, it's interesting because, you know, Judge Jackson was just confirmed by this same Senate body about a year ago to yeah. a lifetime judgeship. So it, you know, a lot of the the questioning that's happening that I've seen on social media is, you know, what's changed? Why, mm -hmm. why, why is it now, you know, you're attacking her for positions that a year ago you you were like, you know, yeah, let's, let's do mm -hmm. this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's obvious. And then it's not because they try, a lot of folks try to pretend like it's not the truth, but at the end of the day, last year, um, she's highly qualified then. And I think for a lot of these individuals for the Republican party at large, it was, oh, she'll be one of hundreds of judges, right? She'll be her, her control, uh, her, her access to power will be somewhat limited because of, you know, that's still like the, so certainly amazing. And it's the stepping stone to the, the job that she's ultimately going to get, but she, you know, they could, I think they, in their minds justify that, you know, she's just one of, you know, many cogs in this legal machine. And now the high court, there's nowhere else to go. This is as high as it gets her own, Harvard, uh, Harvard uh, classmate and Ted Cruz probably sees that as an affront. Uh, many of them, without even realizing it, see it as an affront when they when they realize that that a black woman or any really woman of color uh, is going to ascend higher than they ever will. And so I do. I think that 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 plays a part in it. Um, they, I think, everything that's happening with. Justice Thomas and his health. I think that that is raising some alarms for some people because it was clearly unplanned and unexpected. And it just shows that, you know, this isn't just one justice that President Biden may bring to, to the court. He, might, he may one day uh, be given an opportunity to, to nominate another one. So I think a lot of that just, just swirls in their mind and then of course there's just the fact that they all get to fundraise off of it which has been said multiple times you know these people are they're all acting ted cruz is the worst of them all but he's not alone um they're all just acting they're they're playing to their base and the fact that that is has been normalized the fact that the press has presented it as just oh that's just the way it is versus actually um bringing some accountability to it for their audience. That's frustrating. 
because of course they benefit from the conflict too. So they're not really, I, I just, it's unfortunate that it's gotten to this point where we can't really trust the media to really strongly call things out um, that there's this expectation that the Democrats are the ones that have to do it. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's bizarre, but it's going to be fruitless. We, I think we know that it will be, it'll be, it'll be, uh, you know, it's all in vain, I think. Right. And I, to, I just completely lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, That's okay. You watched my laptop nearly take a tumble. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of, uh, there's, there's a, there's a big conversation around representation right now. Um, and the the question was asked of Judge Jackson today by uh, California Senator Padilla, you know, what he would say, to, what she would say to the little girls, you know, watching her now ascend to the Supreme Court. And her answer was was just as perfect as all her answers have been uh, is she said that she would tell them just to persevere. Um, did you think in your lifetime that you would see a black woman ascend to the Supreme Court? I did, you know, I did. I didn't think it would be this soon, to be honest. Um, I, after 2016, I wasn't sure if we would see a, a woman in the executive branch uh, and after the fiasco that that was. Um, but I didn't think it was this, it would be this quickly. And, and so I, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm so grateful on behalf of, of those uh, of our society who have really lived through some shit. Am I allowed to swear? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Like they've, they've lived through some shit. The, those in their eighties, my grandmother just turned to 88 and my mom was born only a couple, man, must've only been a couple of years. Yeah. About 10 years before the voting rights act of 1965. So there are members of our society who are, are living and breathing uh, testaments to perseverance and they get to see this in their the latter part of their lives after all of the things that they've endured and all the things that they've seen and all of the examples of injustice. So I'm really grateful for those who, who've been able to make it, those who got to see um, you know, Kamala Harris be sworn in as vice president in 2021, those who got, get to see this wonderful milestone with Judge Brown, soon to be justice, uh, I'm sorry, Judge Jackson, soon to be Justice Jackson. Um, but I did, I did think it was, it would happen just because it's only a matter of time. It's just, we're, we're accelerating a lot of these opportunities. A lot of black women and, and other women of color are getting into the, into the mix and they're getting elected and they're leading well. And it's happening at such a, a rate. I think it can probably be tied to exactly, you know, what occurred in 2016, the loss that we all, that many of us, uh, most of us suffered in not uh, seeing uh, Hillary Clinton um, 
win the electoral college and and be sworn in as president. But it's also just a part of a greater, I think, evolution that we're experiencing over these last, you know, this last decade of of women really stepping into their power and stepping into their authority. People from marginalized communities actually feeling like they have a chance. You know, the fact that we have you know, trans and non-binary and other members of the LGBTQIA plus community who are coming in and being like, yeah, I want to be a leader too, regardless of their ethnicity. They're like, I deserve to, to be in leadership as well. Uh, I think that's all just part of society sort of very rapidly evolving, which is wonderful. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very cool to see. I think we, it is a privilege for us to see it no matter, you know, what our age group it is, but as we all those of us who are in that millennial Gen X group, you know, will be able to tell, you know, kids in the in the future that we witnessed it firsthand. And that's pretty cool. In kind of in the same way that like I I tell uh, my niece that I remember a time when you couldn't just get on the internet and look something up. Yeah. <laughs> Had to go to the library. Yes. <laughs> So we are we are currently in a a midterm year, as 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 it usually usually happens. Um, what are there races that you're watching more closely the, than others, or uh, really which which races do you have your eye on? Um, well, I'm definitely looking at Sherry Beasley's race. And I'm looking at Val Demings just because, again, uh, the chance to have a Black woman in the Senate, since we don't have a Black woman in the Senate, uh, their, their races are particularly interesting just because uh, they're in the South. And in Florida's case, it's, you know, Val Demings is, re is really uh, well-liked nationally, and hopefully she's able to really clinch it and get some folks out of their seats <laughs> one in particular um but yeah I'm, I'm focusing on theirs uh as as somebody who lives in arizona of course I, I i would be remiss if i took my eye off of mark kelly and certainly our neighbor our california neighbor alex padilla's races uh they both uh have the unfortunate <laughs> luck of having to run really quickly back to back as senators um, and, and so that's something that, you know, I just, it's holding the line, right? It's making sure that, that we don't lose any seats in the Senate, that we gain seats in the Senate and the House, the same deal, don't, don't lose too many. Of course, there's a little bit of a greater margin for the House for that to happen. Um, but yeah, just focusing on, you know, Arizona, California, Florida, and South Carolina are the, are the big ones for me. And then Pennsylvania, I'm watching from afar. That's a messy conversation, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think regardless of whether somebody supports um, Mr. Kenyatta or Mr. Lamb, most people that I've observed online uh, truly don't want Mr. Fetterman to get it. So I think if if everybody can rally get around that truth that we all that the Senate would be better served by Kenyatta or Lamb being in that seat than by Fetterman, um, then ultimately it'll it'll work itself out. Hopefully, <laughs> he's got a lot of big money behind him, big small money, you know. Yeah. So so we'll see how that works out. But yeah, it's it's critical. The midterms are critical, and I I know that with projects that I'm working on and things I'm I'm 
kind of focusing on in the summer, it'll be really ramped up that focus. It'll narrow after primary season uh, for a lot of these bigger uh, seats conclude in the, in the states that, mat- that matter to political punditry like, like Pennsylvania. But yeah, those are the ones that I'm focusing on. And really it's just, by the time fall comes, we all just got to get in formation. <laughs> you know, everyone's got to get information. If you're trying to, you know, preserve the changes that that this administration has managed to achieve, if you're really trying to um, push forward progressive legislation, then the only thing that we can do as Democrats is is stay focused on that and hopefully not be distracted by all of the other. Um, infighting that is very easy to default to. And it's not to say that the cases and the issues that people have against certain candidates or that they have in general about the party aren't valid. Um, But my philosophy has been uh, since pretty much since we managed to get Trump out of office, my philosophy has been that we just got to hold the line and we got to stay focused. And, And a lot of the petty grievances that people have uh, are unhelpful and they're unproductive and they provide a breeding, um, a breeding ground. Let me say that again. They provide a, a breeding ground for uh, disinformation. So yeah, that's what I'm focusing on. I, I would, I would be remiss um, since, since you are a resident of the state of Arizona, <laughs> if I did not ask you about uh, Senator Sinema. Oh, you, um, you would be remiss, and I appreciate you asking. I'm happy to talk about that individual. <laughs> um, as as an Arizona resident, are you surprised at some of her behavior? Because I know for a lot of us, you know, she she wasn't even a blip on the radar, right. but now yeah. she's kind of exploded into front and center. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, and, you know, I've, I've interacted with many of the stalwart uh, Democratic, uh, you know, members of the Democratic Party and also activists who have led a lot of the uh, demonstration efforts against Senator Sinema pretty much since the infamous thumbs down uh, moment last year. Uh, she was not really a blip on the radar. Uh, she served locally and she, I mean, she was a Green Party member, um, but I think a lot of people found her to be rather benign. And I just, I do think it's important for, for everybody to, to recognize, uh, including those of us who are frustrated with her behavior, uh, that it's not like we chose her just to choose her. It was literally her or Martha McSally. Yeah. So without voting for her. I'm not going to give her credit. I'm not going to give Senator Sinema the credit for us having a majority in the Senate, because at the end of the day, the voters deserve that credit. Voters who voted in uh, Democrats nationwide deserve that credit. But, you know, the reality is without Senator Sinema having been elected at that time, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the the Democratic majority that we have. So it's tough. It's tough to see her uh, sort of come out of the most bizarre and evil cocoon and <laughs> become this <laughs> butterfly of chaos. Um, and, and to see how, you know, again, interacting with, 
with those in, in the state who canvassed for her and who donated to her and who rallied around her because of the kind of politician she claimed to be and to see her turn uh, a 180 on, on folks in such rapid fashion, um, it's disturbing, you know, to say the least. Again, with, with big money, it's really tricky. Uh, and, and certainly with Citizens United, it's really, it's really, really tricky to see what is driving her behavior from a financial, uh, from, a, from a campaign finance perspective. Um, and that's why I think a lot of folks locally have been targeting the, the entities that have supported her. So now they're focusing on HRC before it was Emily's list. They're really trying to get these organizations to just denounce her completely, remove her from the list to no longer donate to her campaign. But, you know, unfortunately with the way that, you know, dark money in politics works is the ones that we see are just the tip of the iceberg. There's numerous ways that politicians can be um, paid for their behavior. And the difference, of course, with her is she's been really open about when she's fundraising in Europe or when she's fundraising with Republicans and, the, and, and actually courting Republican support. Um, so she's been, what she has been open about, I think, shows that she doesn't really care how things look and, and how it appears to her constituents. The fact that she continues to not have any sort of uh, town halls or any sort of even substantial or significant one-on-ones with the organizations, the leaders of organizations who supported her in the past, it, it just, it definitely suggests that she doesn't think that she has to follow any sort of decorum or maintain the trust among her constituency. And when somebody's acting like that, I mean, that just... I think it calls into question everything that they do. If you don't think that you work for your constituents and that, and that your constituents shouldn't have to ask you for transparency or ask you to answer basic questions, then who do you answer to? That is an excellent question. Yeah, it's pretty problematic. But, you know, 2024 will be here before we know it, so. Yeah. <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> right. So we're going to steer away from politics uh, for a bit. Um, got, all, got all the heavy topics yes. out of the way. Um, <laughs> so now we are at the portion of the show where I dive into my email and I pull out a letter from a listener. Um this week's letter comes to us from Jenny in Georgia. I love the alliteration. Uh, nice. Jenny, thank you for writing in. Uh, thank you for listening to the show. Um, Jenny would like to know if, as, as a filmmaker, if it's hard for you to turn off like the filmmaker part of your brain to watch movies. Or if it's yes. always, like you've always got like the critical. Yes, it is always on and not in a bad way, but in a way that might um, not be what the screenwriter or director intended, because I'm, I'm constantly thinking about the process of, of the scene, right? So if there's a scene that's really heavy in action or 
or if there's a scene that's fairly technical, I'm thinking about, oh, wow, you know, what must have gone in? Like, what, what did the team have to do? What did the crew have to do for this? Oh, wow, did they do? Like, I'm constantly thinking about that process um, more out of admiration and respect for particularly big budget uh, films than anything. Um, but it is, it is a constant uh, part of my brain. I can shut it off for um, Marvel movies. <laughs> I can shut it <laughs> off uh, <laughs> just because they're meant to be popcorn flicks. They they have no qualms about being that. And so I appreciate that. Um, but for the movies that are definitely uh, more either character driven or I don't know if you've seen the Batman recently. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Even that one. I'm what I mostly, my most feedback about movies like the Batman is shorter. It should have been shorter. Yeah. Um, I respect movies. There's so many filmmakers, great filmmakers that just take their time and I get it. Uh, I get it. It's your right. It's your movie, but Holy cow. We were taught <laughs> in screenwriting courses for years to come in late to leave early and directors have been taught to you know and editors have been taught about pacing and so sometimes I'm like man you just tried to justify my $18 ticket to this movie (laughs) (laughs) and the $12 popcorn um so yeah that's just my one my one thing about these movies is this trend of now they have to be three hours to justify the cost of admission seemingly and uh yeah that, that gets on my nerves so yes to answer uh, jenny from george's question it, it it is hard to turn it off i can turn it off for tv shows i turn it off even less and because tv has always been a passion of mine so i'm really like if i'm watching ozark like i'm in it but i'm like analyzing like the whole situation waiting for clues waiting for you know the ways that you that as as storytellers within the visual medium how we're trying to give nonverbal clues as much as possible uh which are which means you can't be on your phone when you're watching some of these shows uh because you're going to miss something and you're going to wonder about it later so yeah but it's okay it's not a bad thing probably just annoys my roommates more than anything (laughs) Is there, um, you know, what was what was the last film that you watched that you were just like, I would give would have given my arm to be a part of that? Ooh, that is a really good question. Oh man. Well, I will say the movie that uh, sort of um, you know, for better or worse, I associate with the last movie I saw before the pandemic. Um, which of course, I, when I say the movie, I saw it, movies on theaters Yeah. before the pandemic, uh, was Parasite and oh, wow. yeah, Parasite. Uh, so I saw that like two months before or a month before everything shut down in theaters. And so that, even though I've seen movies in theaters since then, um, what they were able to accomplish with that ensemble, I love ensemble gas. I love them, love them, love them. And so what they were able to just achieve in, you know, in two hours, not three, <laughs> in, two <laughs> hours, uh, in terms of the suspense and the, and, and it was just so unexpected, so many unexpected elements of that movie that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in, in production on that. And, and uh, certainly in, in, um, 
what would have likely been a very interesting pitch if if uh, if he did have to pitch it to studios, um, just because it's not conventional and it's and it ended up being you know best picture. Yeah. Uh, so and it deserved it uh, because it was just so unique. And so I would say just in terms of recent movies in the last couple of years, Parasite's still high on that list. Um, I've from a TV show perspective, I really enjoyed The Expanse. So have yeah. would have loved to have been in that writer's room for sure. Uh, they were there. That's a great example of a show that was saved uh, from sci-fi or prob- probably was an obscene budget for sci-fi and then would go on to be a still obscene budget for Prime <laughs> video. Uh, but great, great message and great um, examination of humanity. So those those two projects for sure would be on my list. That's, yeah, The Expanse, the expanse is, I, I still feel like The Expanse is underrated. Like mm-hmm. not enough people are watching that. So it, if yeah. you're listening at home, watch The Expanse. I promise yes. you'll enjoy it. You will. Watch it from the beginning yes. and and binge it at your leisure. Be prepared for some heavy content, but that makes you think about how, how the United States approaches foreign policy, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, is there... You know, we're we're kind of in the era of like franchises and reboots. And is there is there like a like a franchise or or a reboot of something that if somebody approached you and said, Cassandra, we want you to do this without hesitation, you would be like, yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. First of all, let the record reflect that as an aspiring writer, I'm not saying no to anything anybody comes to me with. <laughs> um, not in a position to be choosy, but but if they did say, you know, this is the one for you, um, Stargate was super impactful. Stargate SG One was a super impactful sci-fi series for me when I was growing up. It was like a, just a bomb on my adolescent, my my weird awkward adolescent spirit so i i definitely would say if they did a reboot of stargate uh sg1 uh i would be so down for that um i will say that they did a i haven't watched it yet because i i'm not a peacock watcher but as somebody who normally is like reboots you know prequels reboot prequels reboot sequels like it's it's a it's really frustrating and and i join in a lot of folks frustration over that but given the origins of how the Bel Air reboot came to be oh and how it was God, in, yes. yeah, the indie filmmaker who just like made a trailer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like those kinds of stories because it was a fresh take, a truly fresh take, not a formulaic, you know, studio executive or network executive trying to think outside the box and find their best showrunner who's been in the game for 20 years to do it. It was you know, uh, an indie filmmaker with, with some personal, um, pride in what the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, uh, series meant for him and really hitting those notes of nostalgia. So it's not always going to work out perfectly. You know, there's still, a, a movie and TV machine behind everything that gets made, 
But if we can find that sweet spot of truly fresh takes on older IP or existing IP, um, I think that that would be a wonderful trend to see flourish across all the platforms. I, I can still remember when the, you know, the, the indie trailer for Bel Air hit the internet and just went absolutely viral because yeah. every every retweet and every share was somebody fucking make this <laughs> yeah. and yeah. now that it's been made i am so hooked on it oh good 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 to hear I, yeah i'm gonna have to give it a shot like i said i'm not a regular peacock uh watcher and just with my my work schedules made it so that leisurely television watching for the last six weeks has not been occurring but it's good to know that you like it i'm gonna give it a shot yeah. For sure. Yeah. Cool. So if the MCU and Disney came to you, uh, let's say tomorrow and said, we're, we're giving you a budget. We're, we're giving you green light. You can pick any Marvel character Ooh. to do their film. Who are you? Who are you picking? Oh, that's a good question. Man, it's it, that's a really good one because I have to say they've they've done the ones or they've made attempts at the ones um, that I would really love to do. I think Agent Carter was before her time. I really respect that Disney and ABC uh, gave that show a proper chance to survive. Uh, the actress whose name escapes me at the moment did such a great job. Uh, and Haley, Haley yeah, Haley or Hallie. This yeah. is a this is a job for IMDb. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, Agent Carter just it was a great example of a secondary character who had enough, the actor portraying her had enough charisma that warranted you know. Uh, its own kind of spinoff. It's certainly Haley Atwell. Uh, it started uh, what would become the expanded universe for Marvel. And uh, yeah, so I would say an, another crack at Agent Carter with Haley Atwell um, would be amazing. And I would defer to pretty much everybody that was associated with that production already because I think they did a good job. I just think it was just the timing of audience behavior and and they were still you know disney plus hadn't existed yet uh, she, she that show premiered on abc before disney was really all in with the partnership with netflix so who's to say if maybe if it had started on netflix and could have been a little edgier like some of the other netflix shows maybe it would have worked out who knows uh, but yeah i'd say agent carter i like that i like that i am Agent Carter was another one that that I enjoyed. Um, I would I would really now that um, Luke Cage and Jessica Jones are on Disney Plus. I would I would like to see them and Daredevil get get another shot. Mm, yeah, mm -hmm. even if they did sort of. Uh an amalgam of those guys because they were crossing them over toward the end of the seasons, right? Yeah, they, the they did. Uh, Defenders was kind of the yeah. setup for 
Yeah. And then just ultimately allow it to be as gritty as it needs to be. Cause it is, it is different than, um, you know, I, there's, there's something very distinctly, you know, Disney about the stamp that they kind of put on Hawkeye and um, the one that uh, Sebastian Stan, that's a, it's Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah. There's something I feel like they, they still kind of wanted to keep it relatively family friendly with those and Jessica Jones, Daredevil and um, Luke Cage were definitely not. So yeah, it'd be, I think it would be worth it. They've got so many properties. It's kind of absurd. (laughs) (laughs) Like they could have the the G, PG, PG PG-13 and R version of everything very seamlessly (laughs) if they chose to. Yes. Um, but yeah, the defenders, that's right. That's what, that was kind of the last, uh, sort of hurrah on Netflix before everything got shifted over there. Yeah. I think that'd be cool. It sounds like the actors would be down for it. Right. I haven't heard much. Yeah. I feel, I feel like, I feel like all of them would be, would be in for it because, uh, Charlie Cox, who plays Daredevil most recently was Matt Murdock in, spider-man no way home so i mean that was obviously nice the interest yeah it was yeah yeah the interest is there yeah for sure who's gonna say no to a disney paycheck let's be real honestly like, <laughs> even when they want to say no to disney paychecks they still don't say no to disney. right i'm thinking about the star wars actors god love them they oh absolutely so much i mean so much in the production of those movies but i mean if you if you get that mouse checked like mm. I'll, like, I'll, I'll, I'll make movies until you put me in the ground. Like, all right. <laughs> as long as the check's clear. The I'm check's clear, that's good, yeah. yeah. You mean I can work my ass off for five years of my life and be set for the next 45 years of my life? <laughs> it's easier said than done, I'm sure, not to not to dismiss all the oh, hard, yeah. hard work that they have to do, but it just seems like, man, once you get that Willy Wonka ticket, you're like... <laughs> Just have to behave on social media. That's all you have to do. Behave on social media, behave on set, be a good person, and the check will keep coming. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. at that point, I would I would take a little bit of that Disney money and hire somebody to just just be fucking Pollyanna on social media. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Here's pictures of me walking rescue puppies and being <laughs> ice cream and like yo being the model citizen yeah no for sure and i think some of them do i mean some of their managers i'm sure are working overtime for that but uh but yeah it's it's hard i some i would never say no to working um for disney i just i just as with anything i just want better <laughs> better behavior like what happened in florida and the fact that that escalated it's just like with Netflix and what happened with uh, Dave Chappelle. It's like, come on, yeah. big companies, just just do the right thing the first time, please, please. You can do it. You have it in you to take a stand. And Spotify with Joe Rogan, like the list yeah. goes on and on. These media companies, like they, and I love all three. I love Spotify. I have playlists that I created in 2010 on Spotify. You know, there's, there's a, a love for these media companies, but it's just like, come on, just do yeah. better, do more, please. It's not going to hurt you, I promise. Yeah, and so. I, I think it falls into the realm of 
a lot of these media companies are starting to realize that they can't like make donations to problematic lawmakers and have, <laughs> you know, problematic individuals on their platforms because, you know, when they, when they originally launched, the information was not right at our fingertips. Like right. you can't, we'll find out. Yeah. We're going to find out. And when we do, it's, it, it does become a swarm. It does become like a, a public, you know, the court of public opinion is on, like we're ready. Uh, but if anything is an example that cancel culture doesn't exist, it's the fact that, you know, Joe Rogan still has his contract with Spotify. Dave Chappelle still has his contract with Netflix. You know, the list goes on and on. Cancel culture is, is a myth for most yes. people, you know. So. We have now come to the portion of the show where I like to play a little game with all my guests. I have before me just 15 of the most stupid random questions that, you know, some listeners have sent to me, some that I found on the internet. Uh, you down to play? I am down to play. I, is this a rapid fire? Like first thing that comes to mind? No, no. Okay. No, not at all. all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what was your first job ever? Ooh, I was a babysitter. Nice. At, at the age of 10. Oh, wow. I was, I grew up in a church with where everybody was, you know, friends. And, and at the time it was full of a bunch of Gen Xers who were having babies left and right. <laughs> um, I, many of whom I'm still in contact with today um, and their kids, which makes me feel old because now they're in college. But, oh, wow. uh, but yeah, that was my first job babysitting. <laughs> what is your guilty pleasure? Ooh, guilty pleasure. Is that like TV shows or anything? Anything. I like French fries. I, any I, French fries in particular? Yeah, or? yeah, no, any of them. Like literally my palate is desensitized. McDonald's French fries, Burger King French fries, like any of these fast food joints with their French fries, like it's on I've done it less in the last few years because I want to <laughs> live but, <laughs> but but that is my guilty pleasure I I love a sweet potato fry oh yeah those like, can be good crunchy though right Local. yeah like it, they've, they've got to be done right and like mm -hmm. there's just there's got to be the right amount of salt on them otherwise it's yeah too sweet yeah, yeah I'm with you yeah gotta have that salt with the sweet if aliens landed on earth tomorrow and offered to take you with them would you go i would politely decline <laughs> i would be their travel agent if they're wanting to check out the states or other parts of the world like i'll hook you up get you some cheap flights if you're trying to be like like not a tourist you want to fly like we do you want to travel <laughs> by train like we do like i'll hook you up but I ain't going where you going. Sorry. <laughs> that is, that's completely fair. Uh, this is probably the most controversial question uh, mm. that you will be asked in the entirety of this podcast. Whitney or Mariah? Ooh, that is <laughs> controversial. That is controversial. Oh, I'm going to say... With all of the respect for Miss Mariah, 
that that Whitney, Whitney, only because of seniority. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll uh, say it's the seniority status of, of Whitney getting Mariah by several years. Um, but yeah, that's a tough one. Because <laughs> it's like the it's- energy of Mariah is so fun, even when she's messy. It's amazing. And she is so talented. And there are like songs in my head. But yeah, Whitney. It's, it's an interesting question because some people, it's the answer is boom right mm-hmm. there um you know sometimes before I even finish the question and then <laughs> other t- like you say Whitney and they're like yes yes yeah Whitney. <laughs> always like, Whitney well let me finish um <laughs> but then sometimes like people struggle with it because yeah. they're like well I mean it's like it's hard I mean you have two icons and unfortunately Whitney probably only edges out Mariah because there's that gone too soon factor yeah. there's like feeling robbed like we didn't get a chance to see her uh complete what could have been her destiny so yeah that's a tiff that's a tough one for sure um if you could commit any crime and get away with it what would you pick Ooh. okay so there's this pilot that i've been developing i developed it a couple of years ago and have shelved it as writers often do uh, just like let it kind of sit and it's about a woman who pursues uh, vigilante justice, which in and of itself isn't super unique. It's just the way that she kind of does it. So I would say if I could operate like Batman, like where yeah, I'm finding people who are committing wrongs, like I'm witnessing them do it and just give them the old one, two, like boom, boom. Like maybe you'll think about that differently next time. Uh, that there's a scene in the Batman where that you know that happens something similar happens and I'm like yes this is my this would be me (laughs) (laughs) just punching out bullies (laughs) and not breaking a sweat and not breaking a bone yes (laughs) Uh, what is a film that most people hated but that you just absolutely loved Two Leonardo DiCaprio movies at different ends of his career, one being Titanic. I didn't think I would love it as much, but my sister watched it literally 300 times when it first came out when we were kids, like has it memorized. And every time it's on, it's been on, you know, cable, it's been on broadcast and somehow we like, she'll catch it when it's on without plan, like without planning. So we'll catch it at different parts of the movie and just watch it through, even though we know what's going to happen even though we know it's, <laughs> the movie is controversial. Um, but I, I still think it's a good, for somebody who's very empathic and doesn't like to see people die, watching people at the end of their life and imagining what that would have been like. Um, I think, I think uh, they did a good job with that. And then The Departed, which is the Martin Scorsese American uh, remake of the Chinese movie um, of a similar uh, uh, concept. And yeah, people didn't like that one. But I was like, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio did a great job. And it was one yeah. of the few Mark Wahlberg movies. <laughs> <laughs> but film buffs really talk about like, it's very, it's it's something that a lot of film buffs are, don't, don't particularly care for. And I think actually, but let me correct myself, make sure that The Departed, it was, might've been the original yeah. Departed. Would have been... I want to give credit. 
Yeah. Yeah. Remake of the 2002 Hong Kong. So I'm going to make a distinction. While China doesn't want us to make the distinction, I'm going to make the distinction. It's Hong Kong movie, not Chinese movie. So, yeah. I feel like a lot of the hate that Titanic gets is kind of a bandwagon thing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You know. Um, Agreed. Yeah, it, I think so. It was at a time where um, something about young cishet men getting really threatened by things that they can't yeah. even really explain. Because that movie really did get attacked. And while James Cameron deserves to be, you know, criticized for certain choices he's he's made in the past uh, cinematically, you know, he's earned that. Uh, he still did a, I think he did a good job of, from a popcorn flick perspective, yes. you know, immersing us in these people's last moments. Yeah. Yeah. And there is, you know, the fun story that, you know, because the film went went so long in production that one of the crew members put like LSD in the water or some shit. And like everybody, like a bunch of people had to go to the hospital for it. What? Yeah. Who did that? A crew member? It's, that's, yeah. Homie. You know that, <laughs> you know that really overused term, you'll never work in this town again? Like that act, that person actually deserved to have that spoken. Yeah. Oh my God. And it was, you know, the stories about them in the water, especially when the water was apparently, there's a period of time where the water was really cold or something like that. Yeah. And they all had to suffer through until I think SAG was like, yo, maybe don't kill the actors. Right. <laughs> I mean, just, just a thought. Just to that, I mean, you want the movie to be completed, right? We're not yet in the right. situation where, you know, androids can play humans. So, like, do you really, <laughs> you really want to do this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what is a film that you could or have uh, watched over and over and never get sick of? Ooh, that's a tough one. I'm going to, I'm going to say none only because... With the exception of the occasional rewatching Titanic in hour two or <laughs> starting in hour two or whatever, I don't generally like to know what's going to happen. So for even movies that I love, another Martin Scorsese, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio movie like Wolf of Wall Street, um, even movies that I really enjoyed for their just absurd, dark humor, what have you, or serious content. I want there to be enough time where I'm still between when I watch it where I'm like, what happens again? Yeah. Because when I know what's going to happen, I kind of check out. So, yeah. Uh, What is your favorite Christmas song? Ooh. Well, this would be a great way to throw it back to Mariah. All I want for Christmas is you. Number one. Like, yeah. Like when that hits, you know, November one, (laughs) 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 you know, it's like, yes, it is time. Um, But there's, uh, I'm sure there's a, there's a classic that I'm not thinking about. Uh, But yes, all I want for Christmas is you is primo. If you had an extra $20 to spend on yourself, you had to spend it on yourself but you could not buy 
buy food, what would you buy? Ooh, $20. A good book that I fully intend to read, but probably won't get to until six months later. (laughs) Yep, been there. (laughs) Um, Well, this is going to be a tough question because you have said earlier that your schedule doesn't lend to watching television regularly. Um, But what what is the best show on television right now? Ooh, right now. Okay, so I'm biased. I think I might have mentioned earlier Ozark, like for real. You, if for those who are patient, who those for those who enjoy sort of like outcast individuals who are somehow coexisting with normies, um, I I really like that. Um, it's a slow burn, <clears throat> but it is uh, very, very, very true. I feel like they did a great job and have done a great job as they enter their last half of their last season, the end of April, which I will be binging in two days. <laughs> and I'm not a binge watcher, but like I have to, because I know I'm going to get spoiled uh, on that show. Uh, but yeah, for folks who, who maybe have tried Ozark and weren't impressed or thought it was too slow. Like if you just get to season three, if you just get to season three, you're going to be, you're going to be glad that you did. And then because of the way that the seasons take forever to be completed, you'll get to just roll right into the series finale (laughs) (laughs) without much of a wait. Um, So yeah, that's definitely my favorite show right now. I understand why people love Euphoria. I do enjoy that as well, as messy as that is storytelling uh, from a storytelling perspective. Um, Visually, Euphoria, what they do uh, and with production design, I mean, it's just next level, truly. two completely different shows, but that make you think about them long after they're over, whether you're like, why did they do that? <laughs> <laughs> why did the characters do that? Or why did the writers do that? Even still, it's a, they're good thought provoking shows. Yeah. I was, I was halfway through the first season of Euphoria before I realized that the show was not set in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Like aesthetically, it's very much mm-hmm. the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I think Shoner's probably in his thirties, like, you know, like we are and, and is totally nostalgic. And I like that. Yeah. I, I like that. I think it's, it's nice when shows almost feel a little timeless because of the very creative, very particular way that, um, that Shoner's handling almost like uh, sex education too. Yeah. Sex education feels very retro in, in how it's, uh, how it, how it's portrayed and yet it's very much sorry it's very much present day yeah yeah how how many alarms do you set uh to wake up in the morning three i need fewer and fewer as i've gotten older i i'm used to need i think more than three because i because i knew that i was going to snooze you know one of them the first one probably (laughs) but you do three two yeah One in an hour, one at 30 minutes, and one at 15 minutes before I have to be up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It got to the point back like years ago before, I guess, again, age, maybe, or just my current job requiring me to be up when I need to be up. Um, I would just snooze in yeah. my sleep. 
I would snooze. I wouldn't even realize I had snoozed it. And the only time I would find out is if I was like sharing a hotel room with somebody or bunking with somebody and they'd be like, you snoozed your alarm five times. I'd be like, I am so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) My brain was telling me what I needed to do. (laughs) Right. Yeah. If I invited you to a barbecue, what would you bring? I would bring two things. I would bring uh, beer or cider or wine, whatever, whatever the vibe of the party, of course, since it's a barbecue, you know, probably beer or cider. And then I would bring uh, some form of dessert. Both would be store-bought about 15 minutes before I'm supposed to be there. (laughs) That's, that's definitely my kind of showing up. Like, you know, swing to a grocery store on the way, yep. you know, grab this or that, you know, and then maybe little up. snackies, like little like finger right. foods or something, but yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what is the worst pickup line that you've ever heard? Oh man. The one that's, uh, that's most common and, and kind of lazy is like oh what are you doing here all by yourself it's like bitch I'm waiting for someone that's (laughs) (laughs) no it might not be a date no it might be it might just be a friend (laughs) but yeah what are you doing here all alone what are you doing here all alone (laughs) my go-to answer to that is always I'm minding my own business yes that is choice. Love that. <laughs> if if you could have a song play every time you entered a room, what song would it be? Mm-hmm. This one I should have prepared for. I'm so bad. <laughs> um, because, like, on the one hand, I could go, like, um, the song that that really is going has been going on like it was like a summer song before it was a summer song uh was uh that bad bitch song okay yeah yeah uh is it is by uh give me a minute lotto yeah lot big energy And if, if nothing else, it's projecting something that I don't really feel. So hopefully I'll fake it till I make it with that song. Hey. That's, you know what? That's all that counts. Yeah, right. And lastly, if you had a talk show, living or dead, who would be your first three guests? Ooh, living or dead. Living. Hillary Clinton, living Oprah Winfrey, because what she did uh, and continued to do uh, in the space of, of daytime and just interviewing in general, I think is, is admirable. And then dead, Coretta Scott King. Awesome. Yeah, those would be my three. Yeah. So we have come to the end of the show. Um, 
in this portion of the show if there's anything that you have to plug or if you'd like to drop your social media handles uh, for the folks listening all over the world at home, you are more than welcome to do so. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm really bad about promoting my stuff. Right now I'm working on um, a docuseries. I'm working on uh, developing a, a feature length documentary about black women in politics. So uh, if you follow me at, at Writer Warrior as I'm as that project goes further along and as I'm able to share more, I definitely will. It's definitely early days in, in the development process for that. Um, I just love doing exactly what you're doing, Greg, just talking to people and picking their brains. So anybody who follows me, um, yes, I am opinionated, but I am always willing to listen and engage and uh, earn a deeper understanding of why people think the things they think and do the things they do. Uh, So happy to engage with folks. It's the same at on Instagram as well. I'm less... Uh, I'm more boring on Instagram, probably. <laughs> than Twitter. I feel but like we all are. Right. <laughs> We're all, it's very tame. It's very tame yeah. over there. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to connect, uh, they can find me at Writer Warrior. Awesome. Um, Cassandra Nicholson, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. It has been an immense honor and an immense privilege to get to talk to you tonight. Um, I have, I have enjoyed this thoroughly and, you know, when, when you drop those new projects, if you want to come on any of my shows and talk about them, I, I will always have time for you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You, you are a juggernaut in this space. I can't uh, tell you enough how much I admire your discipline in not only getting folks to chat and being willing to listen to other folks' perspectives, but actually getting those episodes out. It is a thankless job it is a hard job but but doing it and elevating voices of other folk other people who are maybe not uh super famous maybe not super famous yet but who have something to share um that's really cool so thanks for the opportunity to chat with you and i definitely will take you up on that once uh once those projects get finalized hell yeah i can't wait for that yeah thank you so much for having me If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. If you didn't enjoy this episode, why the fuck are you even here? Don't Make This Weird is a dollop of trollop production in association with Spring Break 83 Productions and the Joyful Warrior Podcast Network.